Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Sarah Homan, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedurals, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. You can check which episodes we'll be discussing by going to our giant spinning wheel and throwing a dart or just going to our website at lawandorderpodcast.com. Today, we're going to be looking at The Mothership, Season 5, Episode 6, competence. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and host of the podcast Crime Writers On, my better half, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. I took a day quill for this, Kevin, so this better be good. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's good. We, we will not have you operating heavy machinery. <laughs> and rounding out the panel is our special guest comedian and co-founder of Upright Lady, Sarah Homan. What's up, Sarah? Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Tell us, what is Upright Ladies? Upright Ladies is a website I started with my writing partner, uh, Amber, and we started it as a way to promote literacy among women, so we were hoping, encouraging women to write and to just, you know, get out there and spread any writing that they have, whether it be a blog, whether it be a short story, whether it be a poem, just get their voice out there so that more women can have a voice. That sounds really empowering, he says, hoping it doesn't sound <laughs> sexist. And <laughs> condescending. Yeah, hoping it sounds... Kevin, why don't you mansplain for us what this website does? No, <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think Sarah did a great job. Now, Sarah, you've written books and screenplays. You've written for film and for the web. You do stand-up comedy. How do all those things compare to you directing a school play? Oh, wow. Well, writing a screenplay involves a lot less crying. (laughs) find that hard to believe. (laughs) Well, I do more crying, I think, probably, but less crying from children, I will say. (laughs) What was the school play story? I took a group of students, and we rewrote uh, The Wizard of Oz, and we called it the Wizard of Odd, so we came up with our own characters. It was a few years ago, so we actually had a character, Joe the Plumber. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so that, that dates it for you. <laughs> oh, you did, did you trademark that, or was that? <laughs> no, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> now, w- when we watch Law & Order, we assume everything was typed out that way, exactly how it was meant. Is it rough handing a script to someone who has a different vision of your art? Yeah, it's always hard. Like, I have a writer's group I'm in where different writers submit things, and you always come away with about a hundred different ideas of where to take your project. And how'd you get involved in stand-up? 
Um, it's something I've always been interested in doing. It's something I wanted to do since I was a kid, but I was never quite confident enough that I was funny, so I never really did it. So I began to take some classes at a local comedy club, just sort of as a way to try out some jokes in a safe space. And then I just fell in love with it, so I've just been doing it ever since. How does that compare to the immediate feedback of whether you're good or not in that moment versus... Life? No, the process of, (laughs) you know, writing something, the indirect feedback you get from, from slaving over a page age or two we I mean we know that experience but how do do those two things compare oh it's an adrenaline rush I mean the first night at class when I made you know two people in my class laugh I just went home and I just said oh this is it (laughs) (laughs) was it was it two out of 700 or uh... (laughs) (laughs) two out of five five. not a horrible ratio not a horrible ratio Sarah of all the franchises which two cops are your favorite detective team Favorite law and order detective team it's hard to pick I really love Lenny Mm-hmm. So, but I really love Lenny and Ray because I grew up watching Ray. Ray was like my very first crush. So I have Ooh. a soft spot in my heart for Benjamin Bratt. Wow. Yep. And when I was in middle school, I was all about Benjamin Bratt. Do you have Benjamin <laughs> Bratt poster on your wall and everything? Tiger Beat. You know, I don't think they made those. <laughs> I don't think they did either. <laughs> but now If you they can. did, I would have had one. <laughs> well, I'm going to go uh, Photoshop something and send it to you. Oh, I would love that. Yes, I was heartbroken when he got together with Julia Roberts. I was, yes, I was devastated. I was heartbroken for her, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been a huge, huge Curtis fan, but I don't hold it against people who are. And yes, there are episodes in which I like him very much. But initially, you know, I was just, you know, eh. Yeah. As I got older, though, I really, I like Lenny and Ed a lot, too. Ed Green is just, they have a oh, great dynamic. Yeah. Now, who's your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. Oh, it's, I mean, it's Jack and Claire. Is there even any question? No, this seems to be so far unanimous. Well, <laughs> I think no. I think someone, I think Sarah DeBunting said that she she actually went for Stone and Robinette, but everybody else seems to, I mean, that just seems, I don't know, is it because the, the romance that we never really Maybe. saw? Maybe. I mean, you know I have a soft spot also for Angie Harmon, so I'm not 100% Jack and Claire. I love them, but I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not willing to say they're the only, the, the one and only <laughs> prosecutorial team. They're not the only one. I mean, I also love Jamie because Jamie was the only one who would call Jack on his crap constantly. Right, right. She just didn't take anything from him ever. So I love her for that. She had that look which was just... <sighs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like the one you're looking at right now with me. <laughs> I wonder if they wrote it that way. Just like, you know, it just you know, stage direction, which would be, you know, uh, she gives him an exasperated look... I roll, something like that. I don't know anything about script writing, so I don't know what that stage direction would look like. It would look like that. <laughs> <laughs> now let's look at the first half of this episode. We actually start with Van Buren in the car with her two sons. They're listening to Criss Cross's Jump Jump on the radio, which is God's way of saying some bad shit is about to go down. <laughs> When she pulls over at an ATM, she's accosted by two teens, and she blows one away right in front of her kids, who forever after made their beds and cleared the table without being asked. <laughs> First time in 12 years I fire my gun. Hey, if you had not we'd be outlining you and Charles. Lenny, they couldn't have been more than 16. <laughs> no, I did no gun. The other one had. You shot the one without the gun? They tried to rob me. Look, it happened fast. Oh. What? The dead kid. The entrance wound was in his back. The cop killed James, who was a minor, black, 
retarded, unarmed, and shot in the back. And the only difference from today's news stories is back then, it was still politically correct to call him retarded. That's true. Yeah, they have no problem throwing that word around. (laughs) The chief of detectives thinks this is a bad shooting, and though Briscoe wants to stay out of it, Logan wants to find the accomplice and the vanishing handgun. Now, detecting the bullet went through the other guy and into James. The detectives look for a kid with his arm in a sling. They capture 14-year-old Zach Rowland. He says there was no gun, and James had harmlessly asked for some money. Now, over Claire's objection, Jack hauls Van Buren in front of the grand jury and suggests race played a factor in her decision to use deadly force. America is shocked, shocked, (laughs) when the grand jury fails to indict a police officer for killing an unarmed, retarded black miner in the back. Though cleared of wrongdoing, Van Buren wants someone held responsible for James's death. Now, this is a rare early episode where we see Van Buren doing something more than just walking back to her desk. That's right. She has children. She has a family. She has a car. Who knew she had a car? She has a whole life. She takes her. She has a husband who has a job, so she takes her kids to dinner and movies. It was really, really nice. This Van Buren-centric episode, for me, was a revelation. And not only because it was Van Buren, also because, and this might be like a spoiler alert, Esopatha Murkison's performance in this episode was extraordinarily good, I think. Oh, she's amazing. Sarah, what do you think about seeing Van Buren sort of in a different environment? I loved it. I mean, it's so rare to see any of the detectives or any of the DA outside of their work environment. It's one of the rare episodes where you get kind of a glimpse into their personal life. And I just like seeing that balance of her being a mom, but still being that badass who's going to pull that gun out of her purse and blow somebody away if she needs to. Again, you know, this is one of those rare episodes where... It breaks formula in its opening where we aren't watching two people coming back from the theater bickering about their seats and stumbling over a dead body. Right. (laughs) We see one of the lead characters outside of work and suddenly or at work or whatever and, and suddenly getting themselves into a jam. Getting themselves into a big jam. It's funny. I hadn't actually seen this episode for years and years. And so when it first started, I was like, oh, yeah. Wait, 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 what? She just shot somebody. Like, I was really, really sort of stunned as if I was seeing it again for the first time. And it felt very initially, and we'll get into this later, it felt very initially timely to me. It definitely broke format, but it also felt like a little bit of like a time warp watching this episode. Um, Yeah, it's definitely a time warp, but it's amazing how everything going on today, how timely it is. Yeah, I mean, we still have all these issues, but I love the twist of having the cop be both a woman and be black that was such a great little twist to make the story that much more interesting and compelling and having the what was he the chief of detectives or whatever he oh, was oh the chief is a real peach of a guy isn't oh, he what a what oh, he, asshole. i'm sure your lieutenant's a nice lady logan but uh, that doesn't mean she should be running a squad well what is it that bothers you Burnett? that she's wearing a skirt or that she's black for your information i got a plus in politically correct I love Afro-Americans. I love gyno-Americans. But if one of them happens to shoot a kid for no reason, that cop's gonna get nailed. He loves gyno-Americans. Gyno-Americans and (laughs) Afro-Americans. Gyno-American. I never heard that term. Tell me he made up that term. He made up that term. It's not an urban dictionary, is it? I don't know. But also the fact that he was determined, like, a cop shoots somebody that it was wrongful shooting. He's going to take him down. That did not feel as timely as, you know, as the rest of the episode to me. Neither did Jack. Like, I'm going to go to the grand jury against a cop just because it's what I have to do. That did not quite seem like it either. (laughs) 
That's not quite what happens today, it doesn't seem. Now, race is an element in the police shooting, of course, but for the audience, how does making Van Buren the shooter change the dynamic of how we view the episode? I think the episode would only work with Van Buren as the shooter because we have now this conflict between Logan and Briscoe, where Briscoe surprisingly kind of isn't full-on Van Buren's side. He just wants to let it play out, and it's Logan who steps up. And we see, especially in, like, in slightly later Law & Order, that Van Buren and Briscoe are tight. Like They become like super tight they play cards together like they really like each other and to sort of see him do that and take the step back is interesting it kind of shows that when you make her the shooter it's just about a cop doing something it's not about you know they they definitely sort of i think tried to take the race out of it they mentioned it but they sort of also were able to sort of take it out of the equation because it was van buren what do you think sir yeah i think it was more about her being a woman cop it was sort of more geared towards the like oh is she too emotional did she overreact so I think they focused more on the you know should a woman be carrying a gun than yeah than the race issue of it well one of the things that I thought was interesting too is they talked about Van Buren's past as a cop that she had been an undercover uh narcotics cop mm-hmm. which is something like we just think of her as like the mom in the squad room you know the, the the idea that she has this like other cop past you know what did the uh the guy investigating her say that you know the streets are too tough so they put him in a desk job and next thing you know they have plenty of time to take the sergeant's exam but no she had been like a real on the streets like iced tea level cop in the past like that was an interesting little right she too. she and she complained about this later where she got to be a lieutenant because she had to work her way up the ladder and it was much more my butt for 12 years I'm a black woman lieutenant in the New York City Police Department. Do you have any idea what that means? I'm not any cop doctor. If I was, I'd still be writing parking tickets. And now you're afraid of losing all you've accomplished? No. I'm angry that everything I've accomplished is being ignored because of a mistake. And it was much more difficult for her than a lot of people realize. Right. Now, Logan, and in later seasons, we get into that even more when, I mean, she has to sue the department and then she has the whole issue when she has the cancer and like, you know, there's a whole reaction to, you know, a woman having to take time off work to deal with that. I mean, yeah, we see a lot throughout the series of her growth and her, you know, struggle to be a black woman at the top. Van Buren deals a lot of bullshit on this show. <laughs> <laughs> she does. She does. Yeah, well, she only had like, you know, 17, 18 seasons to sort of develop the character, so... <laughs> Now, we see Logan is doing everything he can to clear the boss, and we realize why Briscoe is unwilling to get involved in the investigation. It's not because he wants to stay out of trouble. He thinks... It happened fast, right? So maybe she's exaggerating. Her boy saw the other kid. They didn't see a gun. Hey, this isn't a popularity contest, Mike. All I'm saying is there's a lot of sides to look at in this thing. And one side says if there wasn't any gun, it would really make Van Buren's day if we didn't find the kid. He thinks the best thing is for the kid to never be found so it can't be proven that there was no gun and Van Buren goes down. Right. So which detective is doing her the bigger favor, Sarah? Uh, Well, honestly, I think Logan is because Logan is just being his loyal self. I think him trying to get to the bottom of it, trying to get to the truth, I felt like he he came from the right way. And even Lenny kind of came on board. And, you know, once they found some little facts that confirmed her story, he started to get more on board with it. So I think Mike had the right idea from the get-go. But, Rebecca, do you think that Briscoe is being disloyal by 
choosing his path, which is his way of protecting Ben No, Burr. no, initially it does seem like he's being this loyal, and that's shocking. I mean, that was shocking to me. But then it becomes clear, as he just decides to kind of go along with it, that no, absolutely, he has a reason for wanting to sort of be hands-off about it. And his reason is that, you know, uh, don't ask, don't tell. Like, if we don't uh, uncover much, there won't be much to accuse her of. And that very much is Briscoe. He's very jaded, as we know. You know, we see later when he, they, they, they do find the kid with a gunshot wound. He's like running after him. Why couldn't he have been shot in the leg? It's time to put <laughs> off that, that quick line. This is a jaded guy. So we, we shouldn't be surprised that he's coming from a good place. He is, in fact, loyal. But, yeah, it doesn't kind of come off the way you would expect it to. I mean, I do think that's really the Briscoe thing is to sort of be thinking one step ahead mm-hmm. where Logan is I mean, he so he so much believes in Van Buren that he's willing to do whatever. And that Briscoe is sort of this is sort of like the street advice, which right. is like, I get what you want to do. I've been here before, kid. Yeah. But this say my first bull ride. Yeah. But you, you also realize that you also could be putting her career in jeopardy right, well, right now. Maybe it's better to just kind of hangs in the balance. Exactly. Now, so based on the evidence from the bullet, all they have to do is find a guy with a shotgun wound. So how hard could this possibly be in 1990s (laughs) New York? You mean the era where the crime bill was necessary to pass? That same crime bill that necessitated that three strikes and you're out? There was a lot of crime at this point. Well, yeah, that was a bit. Well, I mean, if you remember, President Clinton signed the crime bill in 1990. 94. Yeah, it comes up in the episode. And right, and they make a point of pointing out that, okay, this is all of a, a very sarcastically, this is going to fix everything. Exactly. Because now we have things like sex offender registries and the three strikes you're out and, and tougher gun laws. I think there's also the assault weapons ban, which expired, was in this. Back to my question is this kind of just crazy, Sarah, to think, well, we'll just kind of like look around for somebody who's got their arm in a sling and that's going to be have- our guy? I had that same idea. Like, they're literally just sitting on the street waiting for someone who looks like he might be injured. A kid, nonetheless. I mean, a minor. And then they just start chasing him. I mean, they don't see a gun. They don't see a weapon. I was trying to figure out how legal that really was at that point. Um, Because they didn't seem to have any probable cause to me. Well, they were drinking the Greek coffee, so it had to be legit, right? (laughs) Right, Greek coffee cup. And then they were also saying, like, quasi-racist things about how all the basketball players in the park were going to be in the NBA someday. I mean, that was, like, really politically correct. Or dead. Exactly, exactly. In the NBA, or dead. (laughs) Exactly. They covered all their bases. (laughs) Political correctness, at least, you know, as it's viewed through the lens of history, does not seem to have played a big role in the writer's room. When no. they're doing this, I mean, maybe it's unfair to go back and say, oh, they use the R word in describing somebody with the developmental difference. This is an episode where we saw a 14-year-old being interrogated by the, invest- the the chief detective of detectives who intimates he's going to be raped in prison in front of his mother, who then says, tell the man what you know, boy. Like, this is not the most politically correct episode as insofar as, like, the cop conversations go, for sure. So this is not one they should be showing cadets at the academy? I don't know. There are actually things about it that they should be showing cadets at the academy. I don't know. I'm conflicted about this one. Uh, Yeah, I'm pretty sure telling a 14-year-old he's going to be raped in prison, probably even for the 90s, wouldn't fly (laughs) real well. (laughs) (laughs) When you support us at Patreon at just $5, you will get exclusive content. Like the Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, Laura's Rage Walk, The Crime Writers on After Show, and Married with Podcast with Rebecca and me. Start getting your exclusive perks for just $5. Join our own elite squad at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. That's patreon.com slash partners in crime media.
Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right, now let's take a look at the second half of this episode. The key to proving Zack tried to stick up Van Buren is finding the handgun. The cops question James' intellectually delayed friend Guinevere, who says James wanted to buy her a bracelet with her name on it. She also says she saw Zack waving a pistol on the apartment roof. Take your time, Gwen. It was here. Do you remember where he hid it? Me and James and Zack, we were here. I was scared. Well, don't be. We won't let anybody hurt you. Zach's bad. I just try to think back. When, when did you see the gun? After school. You were standing here? Uh-huh. Where was Zach? I think you're getting warm, Mike. That's where Logan finds the gun in a pipe. Even if James wanted the money to buy the bracelet, McCoy argues he wasn't competent to know what he was doing was robbery. So that would make Zach alone culpable and he gets charged with murder, too. Now, the defense puts Guinevere on the stand, and her testimony makes it look like James's determination to get the bracelet instigated the holdup. But McCoy sends Van Buren to James's house, where they find, lo and behold, the boy didn't need the stick-up money because he had already bought the bracelet. Now, uh, a lot to jump around here, but, you know, I don't care whether or not this girl has a developmental difference, is on a different scale intellectually. Who the hell lets a 10-year-old girl out of school with two adults (laughs) who want to bring her up alone on the roof? In fairness, I don't think they asked. (laughs) We never saw saw them get any kind of permission to talk to her or to take her anywhere. (laughs) You're coming with me. It's true, and it's, again... Gosh, I feel really horrible saying this. Those scenes were very, very awkward to me. And here's the issue with this episode. I mean, as much as I actually think this was a very, very strong episode altogether, there were so many emotionally resonant, strong scenes. You know, the first half of the show, we had Van Buren and Olivet together, you know, the psychiatrist. And it was moving and it was deep. And Van Buren had that memorable line, like, I'm not any cop. If I was, I'd still be writing parking tickets. And then we have, like, Jack questioning Van Buren on the grand jury stand about race. And it all seems, like, really heady, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then we have this poor, poor girl who everyone is calling retarded. On the retarded the st- girl. <laughs> <laughs> retarded girl. Who she, which is, she's referred to that way many, many times yeah. in this episode. I don't know. It was tough. Those scenes were very tough to watch for me. Well, you know, I, I'm going to cut them some slack, you know, looking back at using the term retarded in, in the 1990s. It was not used in a way in this story where it was meant to be demeaning. It wasn't derisive. It, it wasn't yeah. devi- derisive. I mean, yeah. e- even the term that we've used is, you know, mentally retarded, you know, on its face is supposed well, to be. Well, that used to be the term. It, yes. 
Yeah, it re- and it replaced something like mongoloid, right? right? You know, exactly. you, would, it, you know, it was like a kinder, more accurate way. Slow. Yeah, of saying their development has been retarded, it's been slowed, and that we've moved to things like being developmentally challenged and then developmentally delayed, and then you you know you can't use the R word, and if you say it's political correctness, it really devalues something. But it seems like every time we come up with a phrase that more accurately describes somebody's difference or makes them feel more inclusive, eventually people start using it in a derisive it way and out. spoils that. Yes, yeah. Yes. So to, you know, keep calling the girl retarded is not like... Wait, so are you saying that we just have like blanket forgiveness for just using the word that they use in this episode? I don't think you can hold them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. I mean, if you re- like, if we want to get like Mark Twain on and talk about Huckleberry Finn, I mean, there's a, there's a conversation we could have about okay, so, language. So can we talk about something else? Sure. Uh, Logan just reaching into that chimney extremely casually and just pulling out that gun as if it was sitting there <laughs> waiting for him. I didn't know it was not a, not a hot pipe. Went... <laughs> yeah, so she so she agrees to go on the roof with them, which, God love her, man, but don't go on the roof with the cops without your parents around. Just don't do that, right? Am I wrong? You're not wrong. No, you're completely right, but my favorite part of that whole thing was when they tricked her by saying the boy said he had a crush on her, or she had a crush on him, and I'm like, are you, are you proud of yourself for tricking her? <laughs> like, exactly. On, you were talking about Van Buren and Olivet, and this is really the most substantive discussion we get around prejudice in this episode, because she's talking about how hard it was to be a black woman to ascend to the position that she has, and now it has all become nothing because of this shooting. Right. And in that way, she is victimized by yeah. the system. Right. Now, keep in mind, this is 1990s New York. So, mm-hmm. like, there are, you know, you think about the other things that have happened in America, and especially in New York, too. You think about, like, the Tawana Brawley case, and you think about, um, you know, even in L.A., what was going on, you know, rioting and so forth. And that defense lawyer does threaten that there are going to be riots because of this case. So Van Buren does really see that, like, everything that she's worked for, that leads her to a life where she's, like, taking her kids to the movies and dinner and she's able to stop for $300 at the ATM and has this career she can be really proud of. She definitely does see that being hung out there to dry. And she doesn't necessarily see, like, a tremendous amount of support. The entire city is trying to crucify me. That's the mistake. I mean, it's a very interesting situation that the show puts, puts her in. And, and Sarah, it's, it's like Van Buren is in a situation that is much bigger than her and the actual incident that she has no control over. Yeah, and the whole episode, I just kept thinking to myself, if it was anyone but Van Buren, if it was some one-shot detective character they wrote, and they're in the same position, would I have the same support for them that I have for Van Buren, or is it just my love of Van Buren? You mean if it were Profaci, it'd be different? Oh, Profaci. Oh, well, no, I mean, I love Profaci, you know, until uh, until he uh, turns bad. (laughs) (laughs) But don't you find yourself, Sarah, like you're in the weird position of, like, this whole episode made me feel weird, because I'm like... Like, poor Van Buren. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I want the cop who shot the maybe unarmed black teen to prevail. Like, I'm really, really rooting for that side. And that, it it felt right because I know Van Buren and she's my girl. But, like, it also felt weird, right? Exactly, yeah. It's like, ugh, a cop did shoot an unarmed kid. (laughs) And, like, and she admitted he wasn't the one she meant to shoot. (laughs) So, I mean, it was an accident. So, it's like... Something went terribly wrong. There needs to be some level of accountability, but 
Van Buren. I right. love Van Buren. And, and then she kept saying the whole time, like, she did what she had the right to do. She was protecting herself against the kid with the gun, not the one without the gun. But, like, I had every right to do this. I was protecting myself. You know, it's, it was, it, I definitely felt some internal turmoil watching this. Yeah, it was, it was so hard watching it, especially, yeah, through 2016 eyes when we have all of these shootings going on today. You know, yeah, I felt really weird supporting the cop in this situation. <laughs> Not only do we have to contend with one of our heroes, Briscoe, being the one who seems to be indifferent, we also have to deal with Jack McCoy playing sort of the bad guy here by putting Van Buren on the stand for the grand jury and really drilling down in a way that almost seems unfair to her. How long have you been on the force, Lieutenant? Going on 12 years. Would you say over those 12 years that the majority of people arrested for violent felonies... We're African-American. What are you implying? Please answer the question. I don't know. What about your personal experience, Lieutenant, in your own precinct? The majority of the arrests were of non-Caucasians. Was that thought bouncing around in your head, too, that night in front of the cash machine? No. So if it was two white kids that came up behind you, You wouldn't have acted any differently. Mr. McCoy, someone points a gun at me. The last thing I think about is what color he is. Sarah, did you kind of like think that maybe Jack was just going too far? Yeah, he really did not come off good in this episode. This was not the best Jack McCoy we have seen. He was so, yeah, especially during the grand jury when he just went after her. And he really didn't have to, you know, he wasn't, he was really trying to get that indictment. But Rebecca- Although at the end, he kind of implies he wasn't. But yeah, it was, yeah, Jack, I yeah. love you, but you're a jerk. Yeah, he was. And he, we also had to see him in these scenes with Claire behind in her beautiful duet per duet silk suits, by the way. He had, we had to watch <laughs> him try to convince her to commit a Brady violation. Oh, I got so excited. I was like, Brady! <laughs> exactly. It's like, we know about that. Thank you, Colin Miller, for like schooling us on that. But he's trying to tell her that like there's evidence that he doesn't want to present that shows that, you know, the excuse my language retarded kid, because that's what they call him, the difference between motive and intent and that, you know, didn't have the intention to be there. And it's like, I don't. And she said, we have to present. He goes, well, I don't want to. That was the jerkiest line Jack McCoy's ever had. The law says I don't have to do it, Claire. And besides, I don't want to. Exactly. I (laughs) I could punch you right in the face, Jack. We know now that it's wrong to call somebody retarded, but we're all down for like, oh, that's a Brady violation. Oh, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. We've advanced so much in our understanding of the way the world works. (laughs) Esapatha Murkison has said, and only half jokingly, that her character never gets to cry. You know, which is a a thing that like an actress would say. They want to be able to do more. But the commander in the Law and Order franchises has a particular role in the formula. Do you think that her character has been underused historically? No, I I don't know. I I say no, only because the reason she's so great is because they use her exactly the amount that they use her. And I loved watching this uh, Van Buren-centric episode. And I do love the later episodes, too, where she has the cancer uh, and that's sort of the focus. Because you do feel like she's the opposite of wallpaper because any other actor playing that part would be wallpaper. But she's a good actor. So it's like she's there is meaningful when she's there. No, I, I don't think she's underutilized. And I think they pulled her out and used her very well in this episode. That, that's my opinion. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, she's one of the few characters where by the end of the series, you really get to feel like you know her, not just as a detective, but as a person. They give her those, like, that great scene at the end of the really weird episode where, uh, you know, Claire dies, where she gets to read that letter she's writing to her mom, and it kind of ends the episode with that voiceover, and that you really get an insight into how she's processing everything that happened. And then, yeah, later on with the cancer, you see how she deals with her family and her divorce. And, yeah, she's one of the few characters that you really get to know them as a person in little ways throughout the series and part of that's because she was on it for so long that we had the time to get to know her so no i don't i think she was used great and i mean every word she delivers is just gold she's just yeah she's such a great actor that she could make even the times when she does just basically say get out there and do something even those you know have gravitas and have meaning and she's able to sell one of the most unbelievable scenes in this episode which is when she goes to the victim's mother's house to get the key piece of evidence. Yeah, why with 30,000 cops in New York would McCoy think it'd be a good idea to send Van Buren to James's mother's house and poke around <laughs> in her dead son's bedroom? Well, be- <laughs> if you, if there's you only one person going it. in that door, and it's you. <laughs> if the way Jack's thinking is because maybe she's a black woman, he's like, oh, okay, they can connect. <laughs> like, maybe Jack's a little bit racist. <laughs> well, no, it's right, though, because that, that, that is what Van Buren does. She goes there, and not only... You may be black, but you are a cop, and to me, you are nothing but a killer. No better than anybody else who shoots their kids and kills them. I know you're suffering, Mrs. Gordon. Suffering? What do you know about suffering? You lost a week's pay. I lost my baby. And I know you'll never get over it. I killed him, Mrs. Gordon. And I will never live a day without that tearing me up. I work very hard to be a good cop. I work very hard to be a good mother. And what keeps me up at night, what scares the hell out of me, is that none of it may make any difference. I don't want to see any more of our kids dying on the street, please. And not only does she play the I'm sorry that I accidentally killed your son card, but she plays the I'm also afraid my kids are going to get shot card. When she get, you know, she so well, right. She starts. She's playing the mother card and exactly. transitions into that. And whether or not that was what was meant at the time, today we can certainly read that as saying, "Black mother to black mother, I worry about my kids right. in the city having the same fate." Right. And to keep in mind, and I was actually thinking about this today, is that he said, "Jack said, call Van Buren," meaning like because because Claire came up with the idea that maybe the kid already bought the bracelet, in which case he wouldn't have had motive to be at that crime scene, right? Right. So he said, right. "Call Van Buren." Now, call Van Buren. What it actually could mean is. Call her and send some cops out. To, to, she'll send some cops out to that uh-huh. apartment. It didn't necessarily mean call Van Buren so she will go out to the apartment. So she, I think, could have made the choice. She to go could to have apartment. decided on her own. No, I'm not going to send Logan. I'm going to do this myself. Right. She could have, and that that, that would be kind of a Van Buren thing to do. Either way, it seems kind of like a, I don't know what the cop equivalent of conflict of interest is, but this case so centrally involves her, it seems like maybe Jack shouldn't have asked her to have anything to do with that. I'm going to go visit my victim's house. Hi, remember (laughs) me? You might remember me from such scenes as your son's funeral. (laughs) Oh, wow. That was never clear on that last scene. It was so good. She acted it so well, but how does locking up Zach Rowland protect anybody else? That's the like, other I don't conflict. understand why they went after him so hard. He's this 14-year-old kid who, like, yeah, he was a punk, but he messed up. It's like, why do they need to put him in jail? Please tell me you have a question about that. Do you not? Do I just have to go on my rant now? Go on the rant. Okay. This is the central conflict Please. of this episode, right, Sarah? Okay. We're just going to go on without you, Kevin. Right. 
So we have here. I'll be back here. Let's talk about the conflicts. We're defending a cop that shot an unarmed kid. That already feels weird, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Then we're like, oh, you know what, though? She's Van Buren. So it's cool. It's right. And you feel like everything's cool. And then you see Jack commit this Brady violation. And you're like, oh, that's weird. And then you hear Claire, who we all agree we love, right? She's like super sexy. We, we love, love her Claire. saying like, I want to go after this kid just as bad as you do, Jack. And I'm like, wait, what? So, yeah, the end game here is to prosecute a 14-year-old as an adult. That is the end game. And that is the game that we as viewers are supposed to buy into winning. And I got to say, in 2016, I didn't feel so comfortable buying into that uh, game. Not at all. I was like, this 14-year-old kid who is being charged with the murder of his friend that a cop shot. I just like, yeah, I did not get it. Years ago when I was a kid, like I loved this episode and I still love it. But the whole second half, I think what happened was the writers got to page 27 and then Van Buren gets no build and they're like, oh crap, we still have a whole nother like 30 pages we need to write. Something has to happen. I always say that once we see a grand jury proceeding, then nothing good is going to happen after that. That's the end of the case. Sometimes. I don't know. I really like the grand jury proceeding in this case. There's a lot of depth in that, you know, watching the questioning. I don't know. I love the grand jury. You also have to remember that episodes. that Jack McCoy in this episode is is still new to the series. Claire's the one who stands up for Van Buren saying she's a good cop. I've worked with her. On dozens of cases. Yes, on dozens of cases. <laughs> and dozens more. And so, you know, while we have the ability to go back and look at 15 or 16 seasons of Sam Waterston playing this character and thinking we know about Jack McCoy, you got to remember this at this stage, we really don't know who he is yet. Well, he probably hasn't decided who he's going to be yet either, right? I mean, Sam Waterston probably hasn't decided who Or Jack's maybe the writers. Maybe. Because that was, you know, it was a dick move. Totally. Total okay. dick move. Can I get an amen, sister? Amen. Okay. So how would this case have been different if it was still Ben Stone? I mean, Ben Stone, no, he would never have do a Brady violation knowingly. I mean, he had way too much integrity for that. He had so much integrity. It gets me so, it really gets on my nerves. It really does. <laughs> he, he, he would probably want to get uh, Van Buren Rikers. I mean, he'd be like, <laughs> no slack at all. Although, Just because she's a cop doesn't she, mean she's not a criminal. <laughs> Well, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Rip from the Headlines. You think you know who did you it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the Headlines. While drawing on many cases of racially charged police shootings in the 80s and 90s, this episode takes major cues from the 1984 death of Eleanor Bumpers, killed by police trying to enforce an eviction order. A psychiatrist sent by the housing authority said the elderly African-American woman was mentally ill, living in filth and feared some people were coming through her walls and floors. She was four months behind in rent and social services believed if she were evicted, she could be then hospitalised and treated. When they came to remove her, Bumpers locked herself in the apartment and threatened to harm them. Police responded and knocked down the door. They found the overweight elderly woman in her kitchen, naked and waving a 10-inch kitchen knife. While several cops tried to restrain her, Officer Stephen Sullivan discharged his shotgun twice. The first shot struck her hand, with which she held the knife. The second hit her chest, killing her. But a judge ultimately found the officer not guilty of manslaughter. The NYPD later paid Bumper's family $200,000 to settle a lawsuit. So that's the inspiration. How close do they come to the original story in this? 
um, not close at all, other than yeah. the fact that like a cop shot a person? Well, I think the thing is here that we're talking about shooting somebody with a disability of some kind. And where we have in the original case, it was someone who had a mental illness. The dilemma for officers using deadly force on a person with a disability, it's not just the racial aspect of the shooting. It's also this, which makes it a different layer of moral dilemma. Do you not think? Can I get an amen from some sister? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess it a, does. It's but a tepid yeah. amen. It's a tepid amen. <laughs> well, my issue is that Van Buren had no idea that James was, I'm going to say it, retarded when she shot him. She had no idea. We find this out after. We find and it she out- wasn't even trying to shoot him. She was just aiming for the one with the gun. It just went through his arm and hit him. I mean, so she wasn't even exactly. aiming for him at all. Exactly. This seems to me very much like a ripped from the headlines insofar as there's outrage. So let's also create an episode in which outrage might be present. You know, you know what it speaks to? It speaks to how infrequent this situation was in the 90s when this happened versus now, whereas now the crimes so closely mirror what just happened because they kind of have to, to even be similar in you, a way. You mean the, the way that the shows deal with exactly. the, the, the crime. They don't take just little bits and pieces. They try to do as as close to the, uh, the do, real life. They do it a little more wholesale so you recognize it when it starts. I don't think that even if I were really aware of that news story and then watch this episode back when it was filmed, I would necessarily tie the two together. I don't know. Am I yeah. wrong there? Well, No, I, I never would have made that connection. No, I, they were, no. Maybe if you lived in New York City at the time, because this was a big case, and it wasn't certainly you know everything from Bernie Getz to the Wilding case of the Central Park Five, you know, there was always these racial overtones with certain news stories in the Big Apple. This was another one, but, like, what seemed to make it worse in the mind of the public was the fact that the victim uh, had a mental illness. I have a thought. Yeah. My thought is that the part of this episode that reflects that is the protracted sort of coda part in the second, the last third of the episode, which is, like, was he competent did he know this was a crime and not motive but uh what was the other thing they were sort culpability. of culpability maybe that was a factor in this case that was the public argument that got played out you know in the court stuff and in the news that doesn't necessarily read here that you know was she actually a threat to the cop was she actually you know did, did she know or was she just incapable of knowing I bet that was the argument here that got played on the episode that's the only thing I can imagine that would really mirror it because nothing about the, the circumstances of the of the case mirror it in any way no unless there was a draft that maybe had more of a public outcry but we didn't really see much from the public we saw like that one little news snippet where the lawyer talks about the Brady violation. But other than that, we don't see like, you know, riots or we don't see a huge like protest and that kind of stuff really. So maybe all that stuff just kind of got cut. She had a knife? She had a knife. Was it discovered on the chimney by, by a very <laughs> handsome cop who just casually stuck his hand down there and grabbed it? I don't know what uh, Officer Sullivan looked like, but no, I think it was. <laughs> in fact, look, the, in real life, the police union felt like they were under fire. And one of the things that they said to try to explain their side of the story was that when Mrs. Bumpers attacked the police, they had a shield, one of those plexiglass shields, and she put the knife right through it. You know, she was strong, and it was a dangerous situation for the officers. So they're coming at it from an officer safety 
point of view, and the public is looking at it through the lens of all the other venal and deadly sins of the New York police. Right. And so here's a place where we have the friction. Now, I think this is probably why Van Buren is the only character in Law & Order who could have been the shooter in this case. Right. Because otherwise, it would have spun out uncontrollably into the racial aspect of it versus some of the other things that they pulled in. Yeah, but they don't shy away from that stuff in later seasons of Law and Order, nor do they shy away from that in later seasons of SVU. So this was clearly the genesis of them trying that out in this particular part of the franchise. Yeah, if it had been Lenny, it would have all come back to alcoholism. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Or his ex. (laughs) Right, yeah, his ex-wife. He shot one of his exes. (laughs) That actually comes up a lot with poor Lenny. Every time he goes on the stand, in any case, it's like, I hear you used to drink, Detective Briscoe, and he has to tell the story all over again. (laughs) Oh, poor guy. Now, Sarah, what is still an underappreciated topic is what we're asking police officers and other first responders to do, to be the one ones who engage people with mental illnesses when they're in crisis. And we're asking them to determine immediately whether their behavior is dangerous or not. Is this fair to ask our cops to do? And should we feel like we need to cut them some slack if their judgment is not 100% sharp? (laughs) Suddenly I feel like I'm at the presidential debate. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I definitely think it's something that you can't do without very specific and extensive training. I mean, it's something that I know I could not just get out on the street and do tomorrow if you asked me to. So I definitely think it's something if you want them to do it, you need to make sure they have the proper training for it. I think it's the department's fault if they don't train their cops for it. I really do. Yeah, exactly. I I don't think it's a 22-year-old guy's fault if he's hired by the force and doesn't know how to do it. But but at least departments all over the country now know that this is an issue. Yeah, and this kind of training is being instituted into modern policing and there and there look there's a lot of stuff going on police reform for agencies that want to embrace it but this is a reality on the street that if there's a guy in the middle of the road howling at the moon for lack of a better term the person that's going to come is a police officer right but van buren wasn't a cop when she was in this situation and that's the really the rub here she was a mom getting money at an ATM before taking her kids to dinner in the movie. She was not on duty. She was not patrolling that neighborhood. She was a citizen in that moment, a citizen who happened to be armed because she's also a cop. So I'm not really sure that this very heady argument, you know, is one we should apply to poor Van Buren in this situation. Yeah, it was, it's a very different situation, a cop having to confront that kind of thing, and yeah, than a mom at an ATM. Yeah, so. I mean, first she was the cool mom because they were listening to crisscross, and then she was the even cooler mom because she blew a guy away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, the looks on those faces, I don't think they thought it was cool. Oh, no, they those seem poor, poor little boys. Poor little boys, not only do they have, like, the bad hip-hop, but now they also have that to remember. Sorry, I was trying to to figure out which one of them was the one who's always with her when she's getting her chemo and I could not figure out which one it was if it was the older son or the younger son it was the one who got the best look at the shooting I think (laughs) (laughs) that's going to do it for us we want to thank our guest Sarah Homan Sarah if our listeners want to follow you where can they do that Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Sarah Homan 84 or they can find me at at, uh, right ladies uh, right spelled like writing and Rebecca Lavoy, how can listeners follow you? Uh, listeners can find me on Twitter at Reb Lavoy and also at Reb Lavoy on Instagram. And unlike Jack McCoy, my dad was not a cop. <laughs> <laughs> but he still would have gotten the indictment. <laughs> you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet at us at Law and Order Pod. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoy. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for Criticism and Commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know more about what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Studio C and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 